WSCA Portsmouth, where the Wild West End is the best end. Yeehaw! East is east and west is west and the wrong one. And we're back with the Economic Warrior. Your special guest host today, Will Pierce, and on the phone, Mr. Peter J. Van Hemmel. Peter, are you there, sir? I am here, Will. How are you? Fine. That was that was Phil, and we got Phil and that Will was me, here. Yeah. Phil and Will. And, uh, well, Peter, I, I got this uh, $500 check in the mail. I didn't completely didn't expect it. Uh, and um, maybe you could tell us uh, how that happened. But, but first... Um, uh, Introduce yourself and uh, and uh, where are you from and uh, how'd you end up in Maine? Sure, I'd be happy to, happy to answer the question and and I love to uh, to hear that you got a five hundred dollar check in the mail and didn't know where it came from. That's a that's a great no, no, I did. Well, I didn't expect it. Let's say I didn't expect <laughs> it. It was it was your law firm that uh, no, that's great that did this class action. It is so so I'm I'm a real estate attorney at Bernstein Schur in Portland, Maine. And uh, I ended up in Maine. I grew up in Washington, D.C., or just outside D.C. But when I went to college, I met a girl from New Hampshire, and uh, she sort of drew the Mason-Dixon line at the uh, Massachusetts border. So I had my my choice of Vermont, New Hampshire, or Maine, and I ended up in Maine, and and I've been here uh, 18 years. Uh, So so it's become my home. And um, uh, I head up the real estate practice group here at Bernstein Schur. And as part of that, one of the things that we end up doing is I pay a lot of attention to mortgages and sort of the the legal documentation and the process and the laws around the, uh, the sort of the mortgage lending practice. And one of the things that uh, crossed my desk was a law in 2010 that the Maine legislature passed. It's if if you want to follow along, it's in Title 33 at Section 551. And what it pertains to is when banks get all the money they're due to get under mortgage, when you pay off a mortgage or when you refinance it and pay it off that way, the bank has to clear up the records. They have to file a document which terminates the mortgage that they had. And a lot of uh, people, a lot of homeowners had problems sort of tracking down that piece of paper and making sure that the bank followed through. And and this uh, a lot of your listeners will be familiar. This this came on the heels of, if you you remember in 2010 there was a lot of excitement nationally where Maine became sort of the center of what's known as the robo signing cases, and a local attorney at uh, a, a sort of a public interest organization called Pine Tree Legal, a fellow named Tom Cox, was at the episode. We've had him as a guest on, a, on our yep, show. Yep, we've yeah, had him as great. a guest. Yeah, he's a great guy. And he's he's won a lot of awards for his work on the robo signing cases, which uh, through through Tom's hard work and Pine Tree Legal, uh, the banks were shown to have sort of tried to sort of play fast and loose a little bit with their paperwork in the foreclosure area. And and what they'd been doing was there had been so many foreclosures following the the financial crisis that the banks kind of just started signing foreclosure paperwork in very loosey goosey kind of ways. They had clerical staff essentially sort of rubber stamping signatures onto documents and well, they'll be fraud when, right it, excuse me it, it's fraud it, it was it was a, a form yeah. of fraud where where uh, a a an, an authorized representative of the bank never actually touched the piece of paper 
right? Mm -hmm. So the bank just sort of would rubber stamp foreclosures, and some of the documents that you have to submit in support of a foreclosure include affidavits. They say, you know, I swear under under penalties of perjury that I'm familiar with the payments and this customer and the loan, and I hereby certify that this customer did not pay these amounts under this loan. And you sign your name. And what ended up happening was there were so many of those cases, so thought the banks, that we can just rubber stamp this. And we don't actually have to have a, a person with personal information, personal knowledge, sign the affidavit. We'll just put the same name on a thousand affidavits uh, and send them out a thousand at a time. And what Tom Cox did was he said, look, you know, let's find the person whose name is on this affidavit and let's ask him or her, did you actually look at these records? Did you actually check uh, that this loan was, was not being paid? Did you actually review these numbers and the payment history? And it turned out that the answer was no. And so a whole bunch of mortgages were foreclosed on an, an invalid set of paperwork. And, and through the efforts of Tom Cox, uh, a lot of people got a lot of uh, sort of consumer protection. And and what the Maine legislature did in 2010 following Tom's Tom's work, they passed a whole series of changes to try to tighten up the paperwork requirements for big banks. Uh, and, and they passed a, a, a sort of a, a package of legislation and did so with the support of, of Maine's uh, sort of local banks uh, signed a, a, a – they showed up at the legislature and said, we, we support this and think it would be great. Um, and the governor at the time, Governor LePage, signed it. And one of the provisions in that statutory framework was a requirement that when a bank is paid, when the bank receives all of the money that they're due, they need to record a discharge of that mortgage and the original piece of paper, the document that they sign, and it has to be a real person who signs it, not robo-signed, the document that they sign, which is essentially the receipt for the borrower, the, the consumer, that original piece of paper with that blue ink signature on it and hand signed needs to find its way back to the borrower. And it needs to find its way back to the borrower within 30 days of it coming back to the bank from the, the county registry where the, the records are kept. And so and, a, lot and, of, a, a lot of banks said didn't follow this rule. That's correct. And that's, that's actually what, what sort of clued me into this. In, in you know keeping track of, of those statutes, I had read the statute when it came out, and there was a little bit of interest in the, the real estate legal community, and then it kind of died down. You know that was 2010, and you know things sort of picked up again. Foreclosures became less less of a, uh, a daily occurrence, and, and a lot of other stuff happened. But then when interest rates dropped, everybody started refinancing, and I was one of those people. I refinanced. I, I have a mortgage just like everybody else on my well, house. How was in, your experience? Uh, how was your experience and in the mortgage process? Did you encounter any fees? I did, right? And and oh. that's one of the things that, that sort of signals this this pattern out to, to, to me and to others who've gone through it, which is when you borrow money from a bank, there's plenty of fees, you know, on, on your loan application and there's an appraisal fee and a document handling fee and a processing fee and an origination fee and a you know, every kind of fee that you can you can imagine well, shows up. I think up they're called garbage fees. That's right. And and you, you show up at a closing and you're asked to sign this this uh, settlement statement that has, you know, thousands of dollars worth of fees on it that go to the bank. And so so I did that again, just like everybody else, and uh, you know, refinanced my house. And then 
I noticed that I actually got the piece of paper when I had paid off my prior loan with the refinance. It came back to me fully six or seven months later. And I thought, wait a minute, that can't possibly have been within 30 days. There's no way. And I checked the records and, and looked at uh, when the registry had mailed it back, and they had mailed it back you know, five months ago. Uh, so it took took the um, the bank that I had used a long, long time to get it back to me. And that's because a lot of those big banks, and this was a large bank, they use third-party processors. They use sort of a, a plant, uh, you know, a, a sort of an industrial-sized paper handling service, and they have a huge volume. They try to do as as much as they can, as as you know, to to make money and and keep costs down. And part of that means they don't really care how long it takes to get your stuff back. That's not what they're hired for. And I thought, wait a minute, right? This this is what this statute was designed for. And I, you know, the, when I looked at it. I I saw that uh, if the bank fails to get that piece of paper back to you on time, if if they, you know, drag their heels and wait six months, you get to charge them a fee. For once, the tables the tables are turned a little bit, and you get to charge the bank a five hundred dollar fee if they're late. And that's really what the statute does: is it, it allows you to charge the bank your own fee for bad paperwork. And I was more than happy to do so. I see, I see. and. Uh... So you had a case against a number of banks. Um, I looked at the TD Bank North case. Yes. Yeah, it was, it was very interesting. Um, no, there's a. It was initially um, the, the the lead plaintiffs. That would be the people with the um, mm. the mortgages, which got their uh, they got their lien releases late. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, there was a uh, Nickerson, uh, the Nickerson family, and uh, Fratiani and uh, Duplissy, I believe. That's um, right. Yeah. They, um, well, they, uh, I mean, they try to get their lien releases back because they're, they're very important. Um, but uh, the bank told them, um, you know, we don't do that anymore. Uh, and they sent him a letter, or in the case of Mr. Fret, uh, Frettiani, they sent him a letter saying, you know, you can go get it yourself at the uh, at the Registry of Deeds, right? That's right. And and that was one of the things where it, it, the, the bank's, they have various ways of doing this wrong. Uh, some banks send it back late. Some banks don't send it back at all. Some banks send you a copy of it and say, if you need the original, you know, good luck. Uh, some banks never acknowledge anything. And frankly, some banks don't file them. Uh, you have to chase those banks down a lot of the time. Well, wh- and, why should we care about that? Sure, about sure. The, about so, the integrity so a of reasons. The, the chain of title, basically. Yeah, there's there's a couple things. So So what often happens is, if you go to refinance your house or sell your house, you have to make sure that you can convey clear title. You have to give an incoming buyer or an incoming lender a, an assurance that there's not a mortgage sort of lurking out there in the weeds. That, well, that, that happened to me uh, just, yeah, a, just, a, it, just a few months ago, and it, and it held up yep. uh, my refinance for That's for exactly months. right. And And what happens is you're very vulnerable because if you find out that the bank has not – filed the paperwork, or for a lot of people, you find out there's a mistake in it. They spell your name wrong, they have the property address wrong, they have you know, some reference in it is incorrect, and the, the notice or the discharge is ineffective. How do you fix it? What are you supposed to do? And one of the things that you, you can do if they spelled your last name wrong, if, if you're 
you know, Jan Smith and it says John Smith, if you have the original discharge, if you have that piece of paper, you could conceivably correct it, right? You can write your name on it and re-record it. Uh, if you don't have that original discharge, you can't do that. You can't fix it yourself. And it, it does, as you've noticed, Will, it can hold up your closing. And people are very vulnerable at that point. And, and if you need to sell by a certain date, let's say you need to buy another house. You have a, a closing where I did this. I sold a house in the morning and I bought a house in the afternoon. And you, you can be you know, pretty darn sure I needed the money from the sale in the morning to buy the house in the afternoon. And if you have some problem with your paperwork and your closings get out of whack, out of sequence, you're really exposed. You're really over a barrel. And so possession of the original discharge, knowing that it has been squared away and having the opportunity to find it or fix it, is a very important consumer protection. And that's why the, the legislature put that focus on it. And were they the first in the nation to do that? As far as we know, yes, which is interesting. Maine is, is very often, uh, its legislature is, is as your, your listeners likely know, it's sort of a volunteer operation. We don't have professional legislators in Maine. They get paid a small amount for acting as legislators, but they're all, you know, dentists and lawyers and, and business owners and, you know, bankers and plumbers and everything else. So, so we have legislators who are normal people, and they're not career politicians. And a lot of time, Maine is sort of a follower state. They don't have a lot of very creative legislation. We, we oftentimes adopt, you know, what Massachusetts does. We'll sort of do a 50 percent, you know, scaled down version of it. Or if, if there's a legislative uh, sort of uh, trend, Maine is almost always on the following end of it. We're not on the leading side of it. And that's understandable with an amateur sort of volunteer legislature. But because Maine had been at the center of the robo-signing cases, and, and that's really, you know, we were right there when, when all of that went wrong, our legislature was really innovative and, and attacked the problem and had a very comprehensive and industry-leading, if you will, set of reforms. So Maine's law on this topic was really out in front, and a couple of other states have come close since, but but Maine was really unique at the time that this this first started. Um, so, uh, you know, you, in, with your case against uh, TD Bank, um, you went to a special business court. That's right. Yeah, and uh, the um, could you tell us a little bit about how that uh, how that case uh, played out? Now, um, you uh, you're you're on can. Um, Dealing with uh, lawyers from out of state, right? Who are defending oh, the bank? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, when you file a class action case, it generally attracts very expensive lawyers from from very far away places. Uh, and and the, they're allowed the to practice side. in in in, uh, in, Ma in Maine or whatever. They're they're given special permission to. That's right, and that's not unusual. Uh, that that these big banks oftentimes, you know, you can get your lawyers from Philadelphia or New York or Florida, wherever they're from. You can get them admitted in Maine temporarily, and that's a that's a fairly normal practice. Um, they're admitted for just the one case to to the to practice before Maine courts, and that's that's one of the things that happened here. Is the big banks brought big law firms with them? Uh, are they and intimidating? So, or sorry, it, are these big law firms? I think they call them T T B. Uh, Tall building lawyers or whatever? Yeah, sometimes we call them big law, right? Big That's law? the name they get inside the, the industry. And they, they uh, you know, they bring a certain approach. Uh, they cost a lot, you know, versus 
my law firm is, is I think, by many measures, the largest in Maine, and we're nowhere close to the size of these guys. We have something like 105 lawyers spread out in Maine and New Hampshire, and those big law firms have thousands. You know, they, they have 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 lawyers, and they act accordingly. You know, they, they think they're, they're all that, and you, you sometimes encounter uh, some, some interesting approaches. I will say, you know, the, the one case you mentioned, TD Bank's attorneys uh, from Philadelphia were actually quite decent to deal with uh, in our experience, so I'll, I'll give them a special exception. Okay. And um, so uh, now let's say – now you uh, settled that case in uh, arbitration, um, uh, but um, they, they tried to – eventually you settled in arbitration, but they tried to put it in a federal court. Now, why would, uh, why would TD Bank North want to put the, the case in a federal court? Sure. So, so first of all, there wasn't actually an arbitration, technically speaking. There was just a settlement of that case uh, that that arose through what was a mediation. But but that's and that settlement, I I end up running into a little bit of difficulty getting into the details because the the settlement agreement has some confidentiality or or non-disclosure provisions in it. So I can't talk too much about the actual terms of the the settlement with with sure. TD. Uh, but but I can certainly talk about that court and that process. So we ended up having the case be sort of hosted in the main business court. And and the business court is a special docket within the superior court. So it's at the trial court level in Maine. And the, the business court contains uh, three or four judges who are selected for their backgrounds to have experience in transactional law and, and a lot of sort of real estate cases or Financial regulatory cases, or or sort of uh, you know high dollar business disputes, can qualify to get on the business court docket, and it's designed to to have a judge with a little bit more expertise in the subject matter of the case, and that was very helpful in in this uh, in this instance. We had Justice Michaela Murphy, who did a great job sort of grappling with the issues and and the very complicated rules of court that surround class action cases. In, in the first instance, one of the things that the, the big banks did, they kind of teamed up for this. Uh, a couple of the banks kind of got together, and we'd filed against several banks. They decided that this should not be in the main business court because they were concerned that they might get, as, as we say, hometowned, right? That they might get they, – they might have a disadvantage because, you know, what does a main judge know? Uh, we should get a federal federal judge, so that's the only way we'll get a fair case, they said. And so they tried to remove the case from the main court and file it in a federal district court, still in Maine, the, that every state has, has federal districts and courts within it. But it was going to be a federal judge that was going to hear the case. So they removed the case and argued to a federal judge named Judge John Levy that he should take charge of the case because they could never be, be sort of fairly heard by a main court. And so it was a procedural step, and that was one of the things that, that big law and big banks kind of do. They want to make it a pain in the neck to chase them down and try to make it more expensive and, and try to take all the advantages they can take uh, to defend themselves against, frankly, their own customers. <laughs> That's what we ended up saying was this is, you know, these, these guys are afraid of their own customers and are, are running away from a main court trying to get a federal court to listen to it. And fortunately... Uh, that argument didn't work for the big banks, and and the federal district judge said the main courts had proper jurisdiction, 
there was not a sufficient federal interest or federal question for the, the federal courts to be involved. It's a Maine statute passed by the Maine legislature. These are all Maine customers with Maine mortgages, and there's not a federal question here. So uh, the, the federal judge rejected their request that it be transferred to federal court and issued what's known as a remand to send the case back down to the Maine uh, business court. So we ended up having this very complex matter on the docket of a, a superior court in Portland, Maine. I see. Peter, how did you know this case against TD Bank, uh, um, I guess maybe this, um, the other ones were just as good, but you got a great settlement uh, for uh, TD Bank's customers because um, normally in uh, in a class action lawsuits, you might get a percentage of, of what uh, you could – of what you'd be conceivably owed, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. Um, the fine was five hundred bucks, and you got like about I think it's about five hundred bucks for everybody. That's right, that's mm-hmm. right. So, so I won't I won't go into all the details of mm-hmm. of that settlement, but I will say this: everybody was pleased with it. Uh, it was it was pretty pretty advantageous um, for the the bank to to take care of the case. Um, and one of the things that we did, I can you know, sort of speak more freely about, for example, the Wells Fargo settlement that you were a part of. Mm-hmm. We're very pleased that, that you know, with respect, for example, to the Wells Fargo settlement, we got, as part of that settlement, they just sent out checks. They said, you know what, we're going to send out approximately $500 checks to all of our customers that we've identified as having been victims of this problem. And they just mailed out checks. You didn't even have to, to apply for that one. They just sent you money. Uh, you didn't have to mail in a postcard or or anything like that. Wells Fargo sent out hundreds and hundreds of of $500 checks to to Maine people, and we're very pleased in these settlements that these are real dollar settlements for Maine customers. I mean, they're 100 percent of what they're owed. Yeah, exactly. And and uh, you know, a lot of times you you see class action cases where you know the the consumers end up getting something very sort of token. Almost, you know, we'll give you a coupon for 10% off, or you know, we'll give you seven dollars, or or you know, something off your next purchase, whatever it may be. In these cases, these are very meaningful settlements, and we worked very hard to really implement the intent of the legislature in protecting consumers with these statutes. And we think we did a really good job. And and Justice Murphy in approving the settlements when she did so was was very complimentary of the efforts that were put forward on behalf of, of the main consumers that we represented. Okay. Peter, you know, um, there was um, quite a few um, uh, potential class members, um, but but not that many people, but like 5% to actually fill out the form or whatever. Why is that? I mean, all these yeah, people that could have gotten... Yeah, this is a... Sure, it's a, it's a common problem with class actions, which is when you have a sufficient number of people and and this this case, you know, or any class action, you only get a class action when you have what the law refers to as it's a it's a funny word, numerosity, meaning a large number of similarly situated consumers. You can't have a class action case on behalf of ten people. Right? You you can only have access to the special rules of court which allow these structured settlements if you have sufficient numerosity. And and the court kind of knows that when you see it, it's there's no minimum number of of plaintiffs you have to have, but it's going to be hundreds or thousands of people before you're allowed to to avail yourself of the class action rules. 
And so what you have is, is a large population of customers. And whenever you have a settlement, one of the most difficult things that you, you end up doing is administering the settlement terms. How do you let you know, 15,000 people uh, know something? You can't, we can't call them all. We, we don't have email addresses for them. So a lot of times you do, and, and I'm sure many of your listeners and, and you might have gotten, you sometimes get these postcards in the mail or you'll do an advertisement in a newspaper that says, hey, you, know, you may be a, a settlement, uh, you know, entitled to a settlement award. There's this class action. If, if you receive this medical implant or you know, if you bought this product, call this number or, or return this postcard. And the response rate for every class action is generally quite small. And, and that's just a function of sort of the difficulty in administering it. In this case, we were very pleased to hire. We, we hired an expert uh, known as a class administrator. So it's a third-party service that has specialized expertise in trying to notify people by as, as many you know, means as they can that they are victims or entitled to compensation in a class action. So we hired a, a class action administrator. The banks paid for it as part of the settlement, but oh, we worked with them very we closely. Have, we don't have that much time, but, but – Go um, ahead. So uh, now um, is, your, is your bank looking into um, um, Bank of America um, late, late – uh, Sure. We'd, we'd love to hear from – we've settled uh, three cases with TD Bank, J.P. Morgan, and Wells Fargo, and there's a, another case pending uh, with, with U.S. Bank. Uh, but, but any other banks, you know, we would love to hear from people. If, if you feel as though we're aware of, of improprieties in your paperwork or feel that the, the original discharge that you should have received either never came to you or came back late – I would love to hear from you. Oh, and, and how would and people Bank get in America touch with you? Is, is right there. No, how how would people get in touch with you? Sure, uh, you can you can always call me. Uh, my I look at Bernstein Schur is is our website. My phone number is there, uh, or send me an email. All of my contact information is on the Bernstein Schur website. And uh, are you aware of this um, website called uh, Top Class Actions? Yes, there are several of those where where certain class action uh, results are announced. Uh, to try and, and again raise awareness or or contact consumers, and I think that's one of them. I see. Well, thank you very much, uh, Pete, Peter. And, uh, and You're very uh, we've, we've we've run out of time, and I, I would encourage people that um, have, you know, if they don't, uh, if you're like in my case where you where you didn't um, get a mortgage discharge at all, then um, might want to give your your law office a call. Absolutely. Yeah. I thank you for the time, Will. This has been a, a real pleasure. And again, if, if people want to look me up, it's Peter Van Hemmel at Bernstein Sure. Okay, great. And this was the Economic Warrior with special guest host Will Pierce. Barry will be back next week for the Economic Warrior, Wednesdays at noon. Thank you to our guests. And see you next week. Keep pushing back the frontiers of ignorance, everybody. Made out of muscle and blood, muscle and blood, and skins and bones. Mind that weak, and that that's strong. You load 16 tons.